My guest today is Professor Wendy Friedman, one of the world's most influential astronomers. Wendy Friedman is a professor of astronomy and astrophysics at the University of Chicago. She is also the chair of the board of directors of the Joint Magellan Telescope project since its inception in 2003. More than 10 years ago, Wendy Friedman led a team of 30 astronomers who carried out the Hubble Key project to measure the expansion rate of the universe. Her research now focuses on measuring both the past and present expansion rates of the universe and on characterizing the nature of dark energy, the mysterious force that causes the universe to accelerate its expansion. Professor Wendy Friedman is with me on the phone from Chicago. Wendy, thank you very much for taking my call and welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to join you. Before we begin our discussion on the topics of uh, astronomy, large telescopes, and on the construction of Joint Magellan Telescope, please tell us about yourself, about your education, about your career. How did you get to where you are now? Well, I uh, grew up in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and I uh, became familiar with astronomy at a very early age and read everything that I could about it, loved uh, astronomy, but I didn't imagine that I would study astronomy until I got to university. And I attended the University of Toronto and uh that time there was a new telescope that was being commissioned by Canada and France and Hawaii jointly uh built at Mauna Kea at 14,000 feet in Hawaii and i was fortunate to be one of the first users of that telescope a 3.6 meter telescope and that's the telescope where i did my thesis work and uh, initially studying how stars form in galaxies that are relatively nearby to us and ultimately it um became a a project to measure the distant scale of the universe and that's a subject which I started late in my thesis but uh, uh developed as a postdoctoral fellow when I went to the Carnegie Observatories in Pasadena, California and I remained in Pasadena for 30 years uh during which time I I led a a large project a so-called key project of the Hubble Space Telescope to measure the current expansion rate of the universe which is a quantity known as the Hubble constant and uh that's a project that I spent uh but a decade leading we published our results in final results in in 2001 and uh shortly thereafter in uh 2003 i became the director of the observatories and i should say i i went to pasadena in 1984 the postdoctoral fellow but then got hired on to the permanent faculty in 1987 and so i remained in pasadena for 30 years and in september of this past year i was offered a, a university professorship um one of seven positions at the University of Chicago and I I have moved here to Chicago uh to take up uh my own research and uh and to continue leading the giant Magellan telescope project and that's a project that I uh became the chair of the board began this uh and 
ambitious new project to build a 25-meter telescope uh, in the Andes Mountains in Chile. And uh, we can talk more about that in a minute, but uh, we are planning to start construction of that telescope this year. Working for one research institute for more than 30 years, uh, and then moving uh, to a different institute. Uh, how was that move? Uh, were there any emotional attachments uh, with the institute where you work for uh, 30 years? Uh, how difficult or how easy uh, was uh, that move? Yeah, that's an interesting question. It, it, it's true. After 30 years, a move is a, um, it's, it's a real difference. And uh, there are are emotional attachments. They remain, and I will always um, feel very close to the Carnegie Institution of, of Science. It's an unusual institution, and it's where career, and and leaving that was bittersweet. It was um, I, a, a period of 30 years. I enjoyed essentially every minute of it, but this was a, a new opportunity that was just too exciting for me to pass up. So been an interesting transition after 30 years uh, one gets used to where one is but it's uh, incredibly stimulating to be in a new environment in university in a city which I find uh, very enjoyable Chicago and meeting now with students and uh, young people and faculty and, and getting involved in the research in the university so it's been uh, a really uh, for me stepping down as director as, after almost 12 years uh, a, a very, for me, exciting time to get back into more research and uh, to start a new chapter in, in my career. So it's been fantastic, but as I said, somewhat bittersweet leaving uh, a place uh, that I really have loved. When we talk about early large telescopes, two very prominent names that come to mind are George Hale and Edwin Hubble. Talk to us about the telescopes that Hale and Hubble used at the start of the 20th century and the vision that they had about large telescopes. Yeah, that, that's a very interesting chapter in the history of astronomy and it really does parallel the history of, of the Carnegie Institution itself uh, and ties the Carnegie Institution uh, to Chicago, which is where George Ellery Hale began. And uh, George Ellery Hale, in fact, read about uh, a gift that Andrew Carnegie was making uh, for science in the Chicago Tribune and uh, convinced Andrew Carnegie that the way to make progress in astronomy was to build large reflecting telescopes. The telescopes with mirrors. And George Ellery Hale was the person who had built the 40-inch refracting telescope at Yerkes Observatory, close here to Chicago uh, in Wisconsin. And, and he came out to Pasadena and uh, did some sightseeing in the mountains north of Los Angeles. And, and those mountains at Mount Wilson turn out to be one of the best sites in the world for astronomical observations. And were it not for the lights of Los Angeles, it would remain one of the best sites for observing uh, to the present day. But Hale uh, convinced Andrew Carnegie to fund, um, first he built some solar telescopes at Mount Wilson, and then uh, 
a 60-inch telescope, a 1.5-meter telescope, and then the famous 100-inch telescope where Edwin Hubble did his observations, and um, and then went on, in fact, to build telescope, the telescope at Mount Palomar, the 5-meter uh, telescope. But uh, he began uh, as, as director, George Ellery Hale, of what was then known as the Mount Wilson Observatories and brought in a young astronomer by the name of Edwin Hubble. And what's really interesting to me now is uh, having been a director and started this large telescope project, that George Ellery Hale actually began the construction of the 2.5-meter telescope, the 100-inch telescope, before the 60-inch was even completed. Um, quite extraordinary. <laughs> He, he built in his day what were uh, four of the largest telescopes in the world at that time that they were built. Mm -hmm. And the 100-inch was commissioned in 1919, and Edwin Hubble used the 100-inch to study a certain kind of, of object. Um, it was known as a, a nebula. And uh, so fuzzy object on photographic plates that had been taken. And at that time, the nature of these nebulae had not been established. And in fact, there was uh, a debate about the nature uh, of these objects, with some people arguing that these fuzzy regions were uh, regions within our own Milky Way galaxy where new stars were forming and collapsing out of gas to form uh, new stars. And uh, yet other people were argue arguing that they were uh, galaxies or objects in their own right outside of the Milky Way, similar to the Milky Way, but much more distant. Mm -hmm. And it was Edwin, Edwin Hubble who resolved that debate by measuring the distances to these nebulae. And he did that in a, uh, using a type of star that we call a Cepheid variable. And that, in fact, is the type of object that we use with the Hubble Space Telescope to uh, refine measurements of the expansion of the universe. But what Hubble discovered was that the nebulae could not be within the Milky Way. They were much more distant and uh, increase the size of, of the known universe in, in that one discovery. And uh, not only were there objects outside of the Milky Way, but uh, what it turns out that there are about 100 billion such objects now known as galaxies. So about 100 billion uh, galaxies in the universe and about 100 billion stars within each galaxy. So it was a phenomenal discovery that completely changed the nature of the universe as we know it and increase the size of the universe as we know it. Um, that's not the only discovery he made, however. Um, he went on to discover that not only are these, are these great number of, of galaxies, but that the whole universe is, um, is undergoing an expansion. And, and what he found was that the uh, velocity at which a galaxy was moving was directly related to the distance of that galaxy. So the farther away a galaxy is, the faster it's moving away from us. And in fact, very few galaxies, only a handful in, in uh, the nearby universe, are actually moving toward us. 
so he was able to show this unique uh, correspondence between how fast a galaxy is moving away and its distance, eventually to a picture of a universe that has you know, it's, uh, now in expansion, but if you extrapolate backward in time, uh, then there would have been a, a time in the past when galaxies would have been closer and closer and closer together. So a period in the early universe where the universe would have been very dense and very hot. And and that, together with uh, the theory of general relativity developed by Albert Einstein in 1915, mm-hmm. ultimately uh, led to the... the um, the theory which we now call the Big Bang Theory, a hot, fiery uh, uh, explosion, uh, which was the beginning of, of the universe. Mm-hmm. So it's quite a, a chapter in, uh, in history, these telescopes, and it's part of what makes us so excited to build new telescopes, because essentially every time we've built new telescopes with greater capability, we have made new discoveries, and, and that's really what motivates many of us today to continue this um, effort to build larger and larger telescopes. Another interesting discovery that was made during the same period, perhaps few years earlier than the discovery of the expansion of the universe, was the discovery that Sun was not at the center of the universe. So within a period of 30 to 40 years, our understanding of the universe changed immensely. It is an amazing period of discovery. In 1908, the astronomer Harlow Shapley discovered that our sun was not the center of the universe. Mm-hmm. And that's where the sun had been placed, uh, of course, by Copernicus in uh, 1543. And uh, earlier than that, we, of course, thought it was an Earth-centered universe. And uh, Copernicus showed that, in fact, uh, the Earth and other planets uh, revolved about the sun, and it was thought that the sun was the center of the universe. And it was at the 60-inch telescope, the 1.5 meter at Mount Wilson, where Harlow Shapley made the discovery that that the sun, in fact, is not at the center of the Milky Way, but it's located in a, a disk about two-thirds of the way out from the center. So the phenomenal discovery ranks, I think, as as, as important as uh, the discovery of the expansion. And it was um, uh, only about uh, 20 years before that, 21 years. And fast forward to 1989, 1990. Uh, That was the time when a number of teams started working on the idea of developing large telescopes. And the terms such as extremely large telescopes and overwhelmingly large telescopes emerged uh, in the late 20th century. Talk to us about uh, that period. Uh, talk to us about the ideas that were being discussed at that time uh, of developing large telescopes. Well, in the 1980s and 1990s, a number of groups were interested in building telescopes that were larger than the five meter telescope at, at Palomar. And, and the five meter, which was um, uh, commissioned in 1948 was really the benchmark, and there was no other working optical telescope that was larger than five meters. And the problem was that building mirrors larger than five meters 
proved to be a real challenge because glass is heavy and although it's it's rigid, it's hard. As the mirror moves through the uh, uh, through the sky, pointing at different regions in the sky, um, it sags due to gravity, and so the the figure of the mirror becomes distorted and much heavier than the Palomar five meter. It, it was built the same way as a solid piece of glass. It couldn't have supported its own weight. It would have it couldn't have been supported. And so a number of groups began to think, how would you build bigger telescopes with larger diameter mirrors than the five meter? And there were three different ways that ultimately surfaced. Uh, one was to make very large uh, uh, surface of, of glass, but to have that be a, a honeycomb shape rather than a solid piece of glass, mm-hmm. very much mm-hmm. like an actual honeycomb that, that bees make. Um, so that the overall weight of the mirror would be about 20% of what it is if it were solid. And that was a a technique that was pioneered by an astronomer by the name of Roger Angel at the University of Arizona. And then uh, there was another group that made a very thin mirror, not not thick with this uh, rigid honeycomb structure, and then there was another group yet that used a number of smaller mirrors and had those uh, coordinated to, to form a parabola, the, the shape that you need to focus light. And so all three of those techniques were, uh, were used and they all ended up being successful. And there were about 16 or 17 of these 6 to 10 meter class telescopes that were built in the 80s, 90s, and I guess commissioned. They started building in the 80s. A commission between um, uh, the 1990s and uh, early 2000s. And uh, and around the, the turn of the millennium, people started to think, well, how would you build even bigger telescopes, what we've come to refer to as extremely large telescopes. And Pretty much the same technology is, is uh, the, her- the heritage of these telescopes is based on what we learned in the 1980s and 1990s. And some groups are using the small uh, mirror technology and others of us are using these uh, large mirrors, but many of them. And so there are now three groups in the world that are aiming to build 25 to uh, 40 meter class telescopes. And uh, the plan is to have those operational in, in the decade of 2020. The Giant Magellan Telescope, GMT, uh, is a ground-based extremely large telescope planned for completion in 2020. Uh, It will consist of seven large primary segments uh, with a resolving power of uh, a 24.5 meter primary mirror. Talk to us about the origin of this project. How did it all start? The Giant Magellan Telescope is uh, it's, uh, comprised of, tw- of seven 8.4-meter mirrors. It has a diameter of 24.5 meters, uh, resolution uh, that will be 10 times that of the Hubble Space Telescope. Mm-hmm. It uh, began as an outgrowth of a consortium that had built um, six-and-a-half-meter telescopes, two six-and-a-half-meter telescopes at Las Campanas in, in Chile. And using this technology developed by the University of Arizona to create these large borosilicate glass 
solid pieces um, of glass, uh, mirrors. And, uh, but this time using uh, seven of them all together, six in a circle and one in the center. And so uh, this group, the original nucleus of, of institutions that had built the Magellan telescopes began to think of a next generation, uh, an extremely large telescope. And I became involved, I had become director in, in March 2003, director of the Carnegie Observatories. And um, very shortly thereafter, we um, formed a consortium to um, begin a conceptual design study for what became the, the Giant Magellan Telescope. And I was uh, elected the chair of the board for the Giant Magellan Telescope, and that's a position I've held since um, its inception in 2003. And so based on an original concept, uh, again, by Roger Angel, uh, this telescope with the seven mirrors, we began uh, in 2000, in 2005, to cast the first of these 8.4 meter mirrors. And that was essentially based on the experience with the early days of the Magellan telescopes, because the first mirrors of any kind always take the longest to make. Uh, there are unknowns that have to be accounted for, and and it just takes longer to learn how to do them anytime mm -hmm. you do something new. So we began that mirror. We cast it in July of 2005, and uh, then began began a long process of learning how to um, polish the mirrors because uh, these mirrors have to focus light to incredible precision. As I mentioned. Uh, the resolution of this telescope, the clarity with which we will be able to see images uh, will exceed that of, of the Hubble Space Telescope by a factor of 10. And so learning to polish these mirrors and testing them to ensure that we, we have uh, the focus that we need was uh, it turned out to be a much more challenging problem that w than was initially anticipated. And it took seven years before the first mirror was completed but uh, we now have cast the second and third mirrors, and we're about to cast the fourth mirror in, in just a couple of months. And it is very interesting to note that six mirrors that are organized as a circle are portions of a parabola where the central axis is outside these six mirrors. So the construction of these mirrors with high precision must be an extremely challenging task. Yeah, it, it, making these mirrors has been an enormous challenge. And uh, it, so these mirrors, for the first time, we refer to them as off-axis mirrors. Uh, and of course, the original telescopes that we built that had only one mirror in the center, then light is reflected off the mirror that comes in from the sky, and it comes to a focus on the central axis of that mirror with the six in the center all forming the parabola, uh, each one of those mirrors, the light is not coming to a focus on, on the axis of that mirror. And so polishing these mirrors turned out to be uh, an incredible uh, challenge. And uh, ultimately, uh, these mirrors have been polished. It's, so if you think of polishing them on large scales and on small scales, you can't have the light being scattered in different directions. Um, and in the final analysis of the test results, the, um, the smallest, uh, largest fluctuations on the surface of this mirror amount to less than about a five thousandth of the width of one of your 
uh, hairs, uh, about one thousandth of the width of, of a human hair, one millionth of an inch. Um, and so if, if you were to take those mirrors and, and uh, spread them, take one of the mirrors, uh, take all these mirrors, seven mirrors, and spread them over what is the east coast to the west coast of the United States and polish it to the same relative smoothness, then the height of the tallest mountains, essentially you'd be polishing the Rocky Mountains down to a height of only half an inch. That's how smooth these mirrors are. And that kind of precision has never been obtained before on this kind of scale. So it's a remarkable technical feat. And one of the reasons why it took so long, again, to do these off-axis mirrors so that um, the light could be focused to um, this kind of precision. And that's ultimately what gives us the um, uh, 10 times better resolution than Hubble. And as this is a ground-based telescope, the light that enters in this telescope passes through Earth's atmosphere and it gets distorted. And to correct and fix these distortions, this telescope will use the technique of adoptive optics. So, uh, where in this telescope adoptive optics system is placed? Which mirror will adjust itself to correct the effect of these distortions? So, you know, because this is a ground-based telescope, it's located in the Andes Mountains in Chile, it's an altitude of about 8,500 feet, 2,700 or so meters. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the, this is not in space, so we're not above the Earth's atmosphere. And the Earth's atmosphere itself is in motion, and, and the turbulence causes a blurring or distortion of the images. So we use this technique called adaptive optics, and that's a technique that allows you to correct for the motions in the Earth's atmosphere. So we have a system of lasers that is um, connected to the structure of the telescope. These are sodium lasers that are fired up into a layer in the Earth's atmosphere, a layer of sodium. Um, and then reflected back down and uh, on time scales of a millisecond, so uh, thousands of a second, the secondary mirrors, uh, which are these adaptive mirrors, their mm -hmm. shapes are, are going to be deformed to correct for the motions of the Earth's atmosphere. So it's quite an extraordinary technique. It's what allows you to get uh, the precision that you would have if you were in space. Uh, over a smaller area than, than is, is possible in, in space. But uh, nevertheless, it's an extremely um, powerful technique that has already been tested on the ground. The, these systems are already in use in other telescopes uh, around the world, and, and so th that retires one of the risks of this telescope. The first one, in fact, the largest uh, risk to this telescope was uh, the primary mirror, the, the largest technical risk, and that's been retired, and the risk of the adaptive optics has now been retired because there are systems now that uh, are already in use uh, and doing astronomy around the world. Let us briefly discuss the structure, the building uh, in which this telescope will be placed. How big? that building uh, is going to be, how large that structure is going to be, where this uh, telescope uh, will be placed. 
So the enclosure for the telescope is interesting in its own right because uh, we can't have the telescope exposed to the outside air and weather and, and so on. And so there's a, a building. It will stand about 60 meters high. It's the height of about a 22-story building. But the building itself has to rotate so that you can uh, point the telescope in whatever direction of the object in the sky that you're looking at. And so... Uh, it's a complicated building with a lot of uh, elect electrical and um, uh, sophisticated uh, machinery inside to allow you to uh, move this enclosure. And uh, so that, of course, has to be there first. You can't build the telescope, so the enclosure has to be on the mountain, and, uh, and then the, the telescope, large parts will be lowered into the enclosure. But the door of, of this enclosure will open, and there are also louvers on the side to allow the ambient air to come in inside, and so that the temperature between the inside and the outside of the building uh, don't have a great uh, difference, which would cause uh, turbulence, which is what you're trying to prevent. And so um, the design for the enclosure has now been done, and uh, again, we're hoping to start construction. Uh, by the end of, of this calendar year. And the completion of uh, this project, uh, is this on schedule? Uh, when this term, very interesting term uh, uh, that is used in uh, telescope building community, uh, first light, so when the telescope will see the first light? Our plan is to commission this telescope and to have first light with the first four mirrors in 2021 and uh, we are moving ahead uh, now with the construction of the telescope and so the mount that holds the mirrors and the enclosure and uh, two of the instruments for the telescope and uh, we don't intend to stop at four but it will be the biggest telescope in the world at that point and we would get early science observations and then the subsequent three mirrors would uh, be completed by 2025. But we will be taking science data, uh, having first light uh, in 2021. And I believe uh, that the fundraising for this project is all in place and the partners uh, are all in place. And there are uh, other two groups working on similar ideas. However, it seems that this will be the first such telescope in operation within few years? It appears that way. Our schedule has us now uh, having uh, four mirrors and being able to obtain science data by 2021. So yes, it appears that the Giant Magellan Telescope will be the first of the extremely large telescopes on the air. And uh, we have a consortium uh, with 10 partners. We're, we're not through. We would like to continue building the consortium. And uh, we have the funding to proceed with the, the first four years, and uh, we're still actively raising the money for uh, the remaining set. Um, but, uh, yeah, we are uh, pretty excited about being first on the air. Once this telescope is operational, what are the experiments and observations that you as an astronomer would like to conduct? Uh, from research perspective, what will happen when we switch on this instrument? What are your uh, expectations? Well, the GMT, I think, is going to be a very exciting and powerful new capability, which 
will allow us to do, uh, I think one of the first very exciting uh, areas of study will be the study of uh, planets outside of our solar system, the exoplanets. And uh, because of the high resolution and also the greater sensitivity of the Giant Magellan Telescope, we will for the first time be able to uh, measure uh, Earth mass planets. So there are now a lot of other planets around other stars that have masses of Jupiter, Saturn, Neptune, going into Uranus, and now what people are calling super Earth. But we don't have the sensitivity and the resolution with the current generation of telescopes to, to actually um, find planets with the mass of Earth. We just simply don't have that sensitivity yet. Uh, and so GMT will be the first telescope and one of the first instruments at first light will be a spectrograph uh, that will allow us to measure um, the orbits of uh, planets with masses like the Earth and confirm if there are Earth mass planets. But more than that, these spectrographs will allow us to measure the composition of the atmospheres of the planets. And so we'll be able to look for signatures um, that are signatures of life, if there is life on those planets. Uh, and for example, oxygen, ozone, carbon dioxide, water, um, signatures that are not purely signatures of chemistry, but actually of biology. So it's a, a very exciting uh, possibility of discovery that could be made with the Giant Magellan Telescope, and, um, and we're pretty excited about that one. And uh, another area where uh, the Giant Magellan Telescope, I'll call it GMT for short, um, is uh, going to, I think, be very interesting is in the study of the early universe and the uh, formation of the first galaxies in the universe and as they were assembling and the first stars were forming, the first supernovae, the first black holes in the universe. And right now, uh, with microwaves, uh, we can see the remnant radiation of the Big Bang and the earliest dense regions in mm -hmm. the universe. Mm -hmm. And we can look with the Hubble Space Telescope at very faint distant smudges, uh, very distant galaxies but we don't have the resolution to learn anything about them. We can't get spectra. We don't know how far away they are. We don't know uh, what kinds of galaxies they are, how they're forming stars, and, and so on. And with the GMT, we'll be able to actually witness the first galaxies being, forming, being formed and assembling and colliding, which is what galaxies do. And so we'll be able to see... Um, essentially the first starlight in the universe and, and how galaxies uh, actually formed. And we have ideas about that. We have models about how that might happen. We know that galaxies exist today. We see galaxies uh, locally. But, but this will be the first time to actually, we will actually be able to, to see that happening. And uh, as with most things, when we, we haven't seen them before, there are surprises that we just, uh, we just don't understand. And, and I think that's going to be another exciting area. But, but I think, as, as I alluded to earlier, one of the um, really exciting possibilities is that we could discover something that right now we can't even ask the question uh, about. Um, and that's the kind of discovery, of course, that uh, I think would be most exciting if, um, if we were to learn something completely new about the universe. So how far back in time uh, you think 
we will be able to see uh, through this uh, telescope the universe is about 13.5 billion years old uh, how far back in time we will be able to see using this telescope the best estimates of the age of the universe now are something like 13.7 or 13.8 billion years probably took um, a few uh, hundred million years for the um, universe to cool enough uh, to actually form stars. And so we might expect that we could see back to something like 13 billion years, 13.2 billion years, whatever that is, uh, however long it took to cool and actually condense and form galaxies, we will, we will see that whenever it was. We'll be able to see the, the first objects in the universe to form. That is pretty exciting. And we don't know the answer to that. Yeah, yeah, we don't know the answer to that. That's that's what we'll look for. You mentioned exoplanets a few minutes ago. Uh, if we can get direct light reflected from an exoplanet, uh, we will be able to analyze the spectrum of that light and uh, that can lead to major discoveries. Yeah, so with GMT, so we will be able to see some planets in reflected light, uh, reflected light themselves, uh, Im image the planets. Mm -hmm. Those will be Jupiter mass planets, the higher mass planets. We won't likely have the sensitivity to, to see directly the Earth mass planets. The way you detect the Earth mass planets is actually to measure the motions of the stars about which those planets are orbiting. And so we, we will actually be able to detect motions of about 10 centimeters per second. That's how sensitive this will be. It's, uh, astronomers started off many years ago when they first measured spectra, and they were kilometers per second, and then uh, eventually got down to the meters per second level. And for the first time, it will be possible to measure centimeters per second, and that's essentially what the Earth we could uh, look outside our own solar system, we would see the wobble of the sun at about 10 centimeters per second because of, of um, the, the mass of the Earth and the, the wobble that that induces. And so uh, this will be the first time that we will actually be able to confirm, not just um, uh, have a candidate for an Earth's mass planet, but actually measure it directly able to take uh, spectra uh, of the atmospheres or looking at the planet as it's coming in front of its star and behind its star and difference it so that we can actually see the signature in the atmosphere of the planet itself. So it's a tremendously exciting possibility and uh, the, the idea that uh, we might actually detect the first signs of, of life elsewhere in the universe. We're, we're discovering a whole... Um, thousands of planets now, other planets that are orbiting other uh, stars like like the sun, more massive than the sun, less massive than the sun. And we're learning there's just a, a, a huge variety of planets, very different from those in our own solar system. So it opens up a completely new world. It's uh, In 1995, we didn't even know of the existence of other planets other than those in our solar system. And we assumed that if there were other planets, they would have properties very similar to the planets in our solar system. But that hasn't turned out to be the case. Uh, these solar systems are, are very different than our own. 
And so I, I think, again, there are many discoveries to be made. We're, we're only uh, at the beginning and opening up a, a whole new uh, world of exoplanet astronomy. Now, let us uh, discuss uh, uh, a topic uh, that uh, has been focus of your research uh, for past some time. Uh, this is the uh, expansion uh, rate of the universe. And there is one particular uh, concept that is called dark energy uh, that is considered a mysterious force that causes the universe to accelerate its expansion. Now, please remind us what is dark energy and then we will discuss that uh, uh, how this uh, telescope might help us uh, to understand that a bit better. Uh, the dark energy in the universe is uh, it's a dis discovery, actually, of the accelerate, acceleration of the universe that was made in uh, 1998 and 1999 by two groups of astronomers. And, and they actually, one of those groups, specifically set out to measure the deceleration of the universe, the universe slowing down. And so in the early part of the last century, the discovery of Hubble and the expansion of the universe and then later measurements by our group with our key project with the Hubble Space Telescope to refine that measurement and make more accurate measurements of the current expansion rate. Uh, as uh, detectors got more sensitive, it became possible to make measurements of the expansion of the universe at much greater distances than had been possible before. And the idea, what these groups set out to do was to to measure the change in the expansion rate over time. So as you look farther away in distance or further back in time, you would expect, because the universe is made of matter, that um, you would see eventually the slowing down of the expansion because of the effect of gravity and the presence of matter in the universe. But what got discovered instead was that the universe is not slowing down, it in fact is speeding up in it. And there appears to be uh, essentially a tension in the universe that is uh, causing the universe to be pulled apart. And, uh, and that is what astronomers refer to as dark energy, somewhat uh, analogous in name only to what astronomers call dark matter. Uh, and the dark matter interacts by gravity and it's um, and so it's a uh, gravity is of course an attractive force so dark matter plus visible matter cause the universe uh, to um, pull inward and then the dark energy is causing the universe to speed up in its expansion so it's a new discovery relatively new discovery it was made at um, the end of um, the 20th century and uh, the evidence has continued to accumulate and many different groups now using very many different techniques uh, have found evidence for this acceleration and this property that we call dark energy. At the moment, however, we don't understand what the nature of the dark energy is, although it seems to be consistent with uh, something that Albert Einstein called the cosmological constant um, which is a term he introduced into his um, uh, theory of gravity, the, the general theory of relativity, um, to force the universe not to expand. And uh, when Einstein developed his theory, Edwin Hubble hadn't yet discovered the expansion of the universe. That took place in 1929, and 
and uh, Einstein's theory was in 1915. And so Einstein actually a introduced a term uh, into his theory to force the universe uh, to be static, not to move. And then when Edwin Hubble discovered the expansion, uh, Einstein is reputed uh, to have said that this was actually the biggest blunder that he ever made uh, because he had the opportunity to predict the expansion. And in fact, his equations were demanding that the universe not be static, that it had to either be expanding or contracting, but it couldn't be static, it couldn't be stable and uh, not move. And so he put this term in called the cosmological constant there was no reason other than, at that time, it was a, a mathematical fudge factor, in, in a sense, just to, to force the universe to be static. But now it appears that this dark energy may, after all, be the cosmological constant, which is uh, essentially an energy density uh, to the vacuum of space. And, and what uh, the measurements seem to be indicating is that it's, it, it is the cosmological constant uh, that was predicted by Einstein. And uh, so it not only was not a blunder, but it uh, may have been one of his most important discoveries. Um, so that, there's a little bit of irony there. <laughs> but, <laughs> but we don't know yet for sure whether it's cosmological constant, maybe... Um, Maybe this dark energy could change with time, and then it wouldn't be a cosmological constant. Cosmological constant is constant with time. Uh, but there's no evidence that the current else other than Einstein's cosmological constant. So uh, it's an interesting coming around of, um, of events. <laughs> and uh, uh, do you think that this uh, telescope uh, GMT uh, will uh, assist us in uh, understanding uh, dark energy, dark matter, these concepts a bit more? Yes, the GMT will help uh, in understanding dark matter and dark energy. The um, uh, measurements that can be made, again, the uh, resolution that this telescope will have uh, one of the ways that uh, we study dark energy is to study supernovae, explosions of stars at the end of their lifetimes, which can be very bright and, and seen across almost uh, you know, most of the visible universe. Um, you can use those objects, and that, those are the objects that were used to, to measure the acceleration uh, in, in its discovery. Um, and, of course, what you need is higher and higher resolution the ability to find these supernovae against the background of the galaxies in which they reside. And so uh, there will be a number of survey telescopes that are being built um, uh, in the next few years, and essentially millions of supernovae are going to be discovered, but you need to know how far away the supernovae are. You need to know if they're similar in properties to... Uh, the ones that you're comparing to uh, at closer distances, and so you need spectra again, and that will require uh, a telescope like the GMT. And one of the survey telescopes, the largest survey telescope that's being built is in the southern hemisphere. It's called the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, and so GMT in the south is going to be a very good match um, to this LSST and uh, will allow us to study uh, dark energy. And 
As for dark matter, one of the things that we are trying to understand in, in terms of understanding the nature of dark matter is where does it occur? Is it uh, more prevalent in smaller dwarf galaxies? And in fact, the ratio of dark matter to the bright luminous matter is greater in, in dwarf galaxies. And mapping out the, the structure of the universe, uh, the dark matter interacts via gravity with the luminous matter and so uh, very precise measurements of uh, the structure of matter in the universe give us constraints on the dark matter. So uh, once again, GMT is going to um, be a, a very important tool in that in measuring the distribution of matter and the distortion of light uh, by gravity again um, uh, in the effects on luminous matter. So we expect that uh, GMT will be very interesting for both dark matter and dark energy studies. How will this telescope help us to study uh, black holes? Uh, how our direct and indirect observations uh, will improve uh, in this regard? So, so black holes, yes, you, you cannot see a, a black hole directly because a uh, black hole is so dense that the uh, amount of mass and the escape velocity that would be required to uh, escape away from uh, the, the black hole itself exceeds the speed of light. And so you can't see it directly. What astronomers do see are the effects of the black hole on luminous matter that surrounds it. Mm -hmm. So for mm -hmm. example, if, if the black hole is uh, surrounded by a disk of gas, and we see these accretion disks in these systems, then as that gas falls into the black hole, it gets uh, 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 speeds up to very high velocities and, and gets very hot and it emits x-rays and so you can see the x-rays. Uh, you can also measure uh, the motions of stars uh, as they're orbiting about the black hole and, uh, and these motions are extremely fast. Uh, again, uh, there's nothing that we know of over these very small um, dimensions that would uh, allow something to move that fast unless there was a black hole at the center of that galaxy. So you see the effects of the black hole rather than directly seeing the black hole itself. It's the effects on the luminous matter that we can measure. And finally, uh, before I close this interview, uh, if I have missed uh, any relevant point, uh, please uh, do share your research on that. Uh, and if uh, there are new developments in your area of research uh, that you envisage in next few years uh, and that we have not discussed, uh, please share uh, these with us. Thinking about that, and you've covered a lot of ground. I think you've <laughs> covered a lot. Um, and, and I don't think you really left out very much. I think you really covered a lot of a lot of ground. And now in University of Chicago, are you going to continue research on similar topics, on similar projects, uh, or do you intend to uh, focus on new and different research topics? Um, so at the University of Chicago, I've become um, very engaged with a cosmology group here, and uh, we, we are looking into... Uh, n not only what you can learn about the nature of the universe and the cosmological model, the expansion rate, the amount of dark energy, the amount of dark matter, but now that we have uh, a good model of the universe to turn the question around and actually ask what kind of new physics can we learn 
uh, using the universe itself as a laboratory. So, so that's a very exciting uh, area to pursue now that we're able to make many of these measurements about uh, parameters and cosmology to the precision that, that we can now make them, which is quite extraordinary given where we were only uh, a decade or so ago. Uh, and I also turning my attention to um, understanding the nature of uh, star formation in galaxies, which is a place that I started early on in uh, in my uh, career, but again, with uh, techniques now that uh, far surpass what we had uh, a few decades ago. And one of the assumptions in all of astronomy is that the way stars form is the same from one region to another. Uh, and there are some hints that that's not true. And it's one of those assumptions that if, if you're incorrect, then everything else that you're inferring about the properties of the universe, about dark matter and the nature of dark matter, um, may be wrong. And so it's, it's important to uh, understand that, that question uh, and understand whether that assumption is wrong. So that's another area I'm turning to with um, a student. So it's uh, very exciting for me. It's, uh, it's like a new lease on, <laughs> on life in a sense of going back to uh, much more research. Yeah, no, I am enjoying it immensely. It's a, a great opportunity. Professor Wendy Friedman, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on my show. Well, thank you for inviting me. I found your message. Uh, it sounds like you um, really go, you have gone into depth on these things. It's sort of unusual to get more than just, you know, a snapshot of research. So <laughs> I, I was pleased to do that. Thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure. Fascinating discussion. Uh, thank you and uh, goodbye. Glad to do it. Okay.